Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, first of all, I'd like to thank some of our fellow saloners who have made donations to help with the expenses associated with these podcasts. And these fine people include longtime supporter Mark C., Lauren N., Chris T., and Scott M., who also sent a note that read, Hey, Lorenzo, met you very briefly at Burning Man 2006. I was going by the moniker Trevor at the time, and was likely the only one-legged wanderer you ran across at the burn. Wink. Recently been listening to the salon and just wanted to pitch in. Hope all is well. Well, yes, Trevor, all is well, and uh, thank you for that overly generous donation. And uh, after receiving your note, I got a little nostalgic about Burning Man and decided to take another look at my pictures from 2006, which uh, was the last year that I produced the Palenque Norte lectures there. Unfortunately, I'm not going to make it to the burn again this year, and uh, so after getting started with the Burning Man pictures, I thought, hey, what the heck, since I'm uh, not going to lose several weeks involved with the burn this year, I can at least uh, maybe afford to spend a little time just poking around the web and seeing how the lead-up to the burn is going this year. And, uh, well, one thing led to another, and I wound up surfing Burning Man sites for the better part of two days, (laughs) which is uh, why this podcast is a little late coming out this week. And I have to admit that after reading about a whiteout that the uh, DPW and art installation crews went through a couple of days ago, I was glad that I'm not there right now. Uh, Apparently the storm that they had was so strong that tents were being shredded. And uh, when I read about that, uh, an old saying came to mind from my days as a hot air balloon pilot. You uh, probably didn't know that about me, did you? (laughs) Well, back in my flying days, uh, whenever the weather was questionable, uh, our pat saying was, I'd rather be down here wishing I was up there than up there wishing I was down here. And uh, so for this year, I'll be down here wishing I was on the playa with the rest of the tribe. But never fear, I plan on returning for the burn in 2012 when uh, I'll be celebrating my 70th birthday. And uh, I hope you can make it, too, uh, to that one. Uh, Actually, I hope I can make it. uh, (laughs) But at least that's my present intention. And uh, lest I forget, I wouldn't even be able to dream about going back to the playa if it wasn't for all of our wonderful supporters like Trevor, Mark, Lauren, Chris, and Scott, as well as those uh, fine souls who recently bought a copy of my novel through my new Pay What You Can site, which I'll uh, mention at the end of this program. But for now, uh, let's get on with the show today. Uh, I'm going to play another recording that was sent to me by fellow saloner Gary Eisenberg. And uh, it's from another uh, fundraising event for the Albert Hoffman Foundation. This one, uh, I think, was actually held before the event that I featured in podcasts uh, 237 and 238. The CD that Gary sent uh, is labeled Beyond the Doors of Perception, Part 2 Only and uh, shows a date of July 24th, 1988. And from what I gather, uh, Paul Krasner was the MC for the event, and uh, Laura Huxley must have been the first speaker. We'll pick up right now in the middle of uh, Timothy Leary's talk, where he gets a little overly optimistic in thinking that by 1998, the U.S. Congress would be overwhelmingly Bob Dylan fans and uh, would have changed everything. And uh, I guess we know how far off the mark that prediction was. 
Now, uh, following Dr. Leary's short uh, part of the talk, the first voice we hear is, uh, I think, that of Paul Krasner. And uh, if you aren't familiar with Paul, you're missing a huge part of the history of the 60s. Uh, he's most definitely one of my heroes, and uh, he's also one heck of a nice person. Paul then uh, introduces Tom Van Sant, who I'm sure you know is a major artist whose work may be found in public spaces all over the planet. Tom uh, only makes a brief appearance, but he does make mention of his participation in Oscar Janiger's research uh, several years before. Then comes Ramdas, whose uh, talk makes up most of this podcast and is one that I think you'll really enjoy. While he does uh, briefly tell a story or two that we may have heard before, I think that overall you are going to find a few new little Ramdas gems in this talk. So let's time travel back now uh, to July of 1988 and join the good Dr. Timothy Leary. And I say that in the best sense of the word of a man who, who's, uh, who, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, I'm proud to, to be your friend, Richard, and uh, look forward to many years uh, ahead, uh, better and better. Now, Ralph Metzler is another hero. When Ralph, uh, when I first met Ralph, he came into our office at Harvard and said he wanted to volunteer for this dread drug research. And um, uh, Ralph had come from England, where he was a top uh, a student in the English public school system, and he was smarter than most of the uh, uh, American-trained uh, graduate students. But he was so precise and he was so British, and I thought, oh my God, I was. Can I take this uh, young man into the maximum security prison and like that? Well, I want to tell you that, uh, again, when you talk about courage and risk-taking and the ability to put yourself on the front line and your body and your reputation and your mind and even your soul, I've watched the saga. Now, Ralph just told you tonight that here's this, here's this um, very, very experimental psychologist who in 10 years is uh, the leading top exponents of psychedelic experience and then he stopped for nine years now that's interesting and then in the last uh, I guess eight or nine years Ralph has, has moved ahead and has done something that's very valuable and necessary he, he's our historian you heard him in action tonight and he's also uh, made us a Acquainted with the history of where we all came from, the shamanic tradition, the, the voodoo tradition, the Celtic, the German traditions. The, so that, um, it's, uh, and again, did you notice I was saying to Richards, we were watching Ralph on the podium here tonight, you know, he, he could be a movie star, you know? He's like uh, the Redford mustache and all that. I mean, uh, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm proud to be uh, part of this trio. Uh, <laughs> It was not a trio. I apologize for that. There were many of us there. At one time, or overall, there were about a f must have been 50 people in our project at Harvard. And I want to tell you, I don't think I'd put us up against the uh, 1927 New York Yankees <laughs> or, or Plato Aristotle. I'd meet in fair contact. That was a hell of a group of, uh, of thinkers. <laughs> Down the street, down Mass Avenue, uh, there was a, the, uh, a college called MIT, and the chairman of the philosophy department at MIT was a man named Houston Smith, who was hanging out. Actually, he brought Aldous Huxley there to remember Laura when Aldous was the visiting professor there. And uh, he came over to Harvard and said to Richard and Ralph and I, listen, uh, I'd like to uh, have some psilocybin. You know, well, man, what do you mean? you coming in here, you want to score? What's going on? What do you want to do with it? And she said, well, uh, 
I teach the, uh, the uh, graduate course on mysticism at MIT, and I'd like to have some laboratory co- demonstrations. <laughs> and in due course, uh, he worked with us, we trained him, and he went back to MIT. And believe it or not, I know in the 1988, it sounds as though I'm hallucinating when I say this, but he was giving uh, psychedelic drugs as part of a required course at MIT. And... Uh, <laughs> Is it a dream? Is it a dream? (laughs) Or Walter Houston Clark, who was an emeritus uh, professor in his 60s, came into our office and he wanted to take a trip. Oh, my God. Turned out that for the next 20 years, he's now in his 80s, he's been the most gung-ho, acrobatic, psychedelic. uh, He became the president of the American Psychological Association's religious, so forth. He's, uh, I mean, the, the heroism of uh, and the and the courage of uh, these men to um, you know take this position and stick by it year after year. Um, George Litwin and uh, uh, Gunther Weil. I could go down the list of the people that were there with us at Harvard. I'm very proud, and I know Richard uh, shares this uh, pride uh, with me. Uh, Ralph doesn't because he was a graduate student, but as uh, as uh, as faculty members, I think Richard and I can say that of the 20 or 25 students that uh, were working with us, I, maybe only one of them ever got tenure. <laughs> Not one of them went on the old assembly line and you got on that thing of assistant professor and associate professor. I mean, I mean uh, I'm so proud of the, in each in their own way, in each one of our uh, graduate students, matter of fact, has become Nancy Reagan's number one advisor on the drug, on the war, the war on drugs. So, do your thing, man. <laughs> uh, the interesting thing was at that time, between 55 and 70, and certainly between 60 and 68, when we were busy uh, doing our work, uh, there were at least 50 other research projects and small groups that were working uh, together in this frontier. Now, I can't speak for all of them, but I can speak for our group at Harvard. There were at least two things that we knew right from the beginning. Number one was that we didn't know what we were doing. There was simply nothing in American psychology or American science or American philosophy that could prepare the American in 1960s for a full-blown full tilt boogie a psychedelic experience. It was hallucination or a psychotomimetic or a schizophrenic and literally most of the uh, academics thought we were out of our minds uh, encouraging people or allowing them to go out of their minds and you know, uh, there, was no, there was no language, there was no tradition. And that's where people like Aldous Huxley and, and uh, Gerald Hurd and Humphrey Osmond and Alan Watts uh, came in. They sat down with us very quietly and they took us into the drawing room like uh, um, fathers and uncles with young kids and they said, listen boys, this has been going on for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, if you trace the philosophic history of the human race, you'll find that in every culture, and particularly any culture that has lasted or that gave our species a, a message or a, a cargo of interesting philosophy, you will always find this tradition of the um, transcendental experience or the mystery cult or um, Ralph, of course, who knows much more about this than I will tell you about Eleusis and um, the, the origins of most of the great 
religions go back to groups of people who made this discovery that you don't look for God or you don't look for power in the uh, Caesars or in the temples or in the churches and all that. You look within. They fired, they fired Emerson from Harvard, by the way, uh, for saying that in around 1838. He said self-reliance, which of course means drop out. They wouldn't let Emerson back to Harvard for 38 years, and after all, Richard and I came back after 20 years, so it shows that uh, something's loosening up. We didn't know what we were doing. We knew, number two, that we were onto something that uh, was bigger than both of us, (laughs) bigger than all of us, and uh, we we felt, as I know most of you in this uh, wonderful scene tonight feel, that we have been, and we are, and we shall continue to be part of one of the glorious traditions of human spirit. We're homo sapiens sapiens. It's our job. We're the animals or the entities that are wired, fired, and inspired and given this hundred billion neuron brain to think and to explore. The, um, the fun has hardly begun. The fun has hardly begun. See, we knew by the mid-60s, all of us, by the way, were taken totally by surprise with the baby boom. You know, we didn't realize that what Dr. Spock told kids that demand feeding, that they'd want demand breeding, and they'd want to have some say of their education and their sex lives, and uh, they'd want something better than alcohol. So um, by the mid-60s, we realized that it was going to take uh, at least 20, maybe 25 years before the seeds that we were planting or the work we were starting uh, would, would, uh, would, would become cohesive as an intellectual, as a scientific, as a linguistic uh, entity, and above all, as a social-cultural situation. I have a lot of fun these days uh, talking, uh, it's an election year, people ask about uh, what's going on and so forth, and uh, I um, look into the camera, or I look at the uh, reporter, and I say, well, uh, I have very simple and obvious common sense statistical fact that I think is going to change a lot of things. Ten years from now in the year 1998, over 75% of the House of Representatives and probably 66% of the high court will have been Bob Dylan fans 30 years before. I know we're all here to listen to Richard. Oz, one more time, I want to thank you for making this possible. Count on all of our support in the future. And I know we're going to look forward to Richard. Thank you and good night. Thank you, Tim. For a moment there, when you were describing how handsome Ram Dass and Mal- Ralph Metzner were, I thought you were coming out of the closet. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Tim, uh, Tim is appearing as a stand-up philosopher at a club called Carlos and Charlie's, uh, starting next Sunday for nine weeks. And... Uh, 
And uh, now I'm going to introduce somebody who's not uh, on the program. Uh, Tom Van Sant, uh, who was in the original experiments that Oz was doing and is an incredibly imaginative artist. Uh, among his achievements is he's constructed the largest kite in the world. And um, he'll now share with us what he learned from flying it. Is Tom Van Sant. Thank you very much. Uh, I was quite disappointed that uh, Judge Kennedy was withdrawn from nomination. I thought he would make an excellent joint commissioner on the high court. Um, I had the, 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 the pleasure of meeting Oz Janiger in 1957 uh, through an interview I did of Gerald Hurd for a small magazine, and this remarkable man spoke about uh, this extraordinary experience. And uh, I went down to the Oz Janiger program after, after sort of uh, being assured that it wouldn't turn me uh, totally crazy and uh, participated in this, in this program where the genius of Oz's program was that he selected artists uh, to paint a particular subject, which was a cochina doll, uh, before, during, and after the LSD experience. So he not only had written commentary, but he had this visual representation of the change of consciousness. Uh, I asked him what it was going to be like, and all he could do was chuckle. Uh, <laughs> when it was over, I called um, Gerald Hurd and asked him what it was I'd seen. Uh, he told me, it was absolutely true, everything I had seen. And uh, then I made the mistake of, since there was only maybe a couple of dozen people that knew about this, uh, certainly on this code, uh, I made the mistake of talking to somebody who didn't know about it and describing it as uh, access to God through the top buttonhole of my shirt. Uh, and it, the communication wasn't complete. I, I made a mistake uh, last Wednesday night when they asked, well, who will stand up and give the pitch for donations to the Albert Hoffman Museum? Uh, after about a minute of silence, I said, hell, I will. And uh, so that's what I would like to do. I would like to um, reinforce uh, Oz Janiger and Tim's uh, support of the Albert Hoffman uh, museum, uh, gallery, and library, the uh, repository for uh, LSD and other uh, mind-expanding drugs and experiences, uh, and a repository for those subjects. And I urge everyone to respond to the, um, uh, the back portion of their invitation, which invites donations and there will be ushers at the doors at the exits uh, and you can't get out unless you donate and uh, thank you very much it's um i hardly know how to introduce our next speaker it's because he's kept changing his name <laughs> um, I remember they used to, at the beginning, they would say, and now we have Richard Alpert. 
Then they had to say, now we have Baba Ramdas, formerly Richard Alpert. And then he was going to go back to Richard Alpert, so we, had, we were going to say, now let's introduce Richard Alpert, formerly Baba Ramdas. Or we could just skip the middle and say, here's Richard Alpert, formerly Richard Alpert. Uh, but um, but I, I just know that, that meeting these people at Millbrook, for me, uh, uh, made me realize that even if there was brain damage, it was worth the risk. <laughs> And one time I asked Ramdas if, if we exchanged our philosophies, that if I believed in reincarnation and he didn't believe in reincarnation, how would that change our behavior? And he thought for a split second and said, well, if you believed in reincarnation, you wouldn't ask a question like that. And it was sort of like a, a Zen Cohen. Um, uh-huh. But it was Laura Huxley who persuaded him to, to drop the robes and just to wear a casual sweater and, and to drop the baba. So I'm honored and delighted to introduce Just Plain Ram Dass. It's a very precious evening, just the, the way in which we are out front in honoring something that's played such an important part in our lives. And uh, it's interesting, so often people say to me, well, you have stopped using drugs, haven't you? <laughs> and I always say, no, I haven't. In fact, I take acid every couple of years to find out what I've forgotten. When Paul was talking about um, being in court on acid, um, uh, it brought to mind a moment when, uh, in, in, um, for many years, uh, I was plagued with the problem of coming down all the time. And, um, and since I was a, uh, I was Mr. LSD Jr. Uh, <laughs> behind the, the master, um, he saved me from middle class neurosis. I, Timothy did. Uh, at any rate, um, I always wanted to offer an audience uh, consciousness as clear as I could get it. And so I was always in the bathroom or somewhere preparing to go on stage in a psychedelic way. And um, I was appearing at the committee in San Francisco, which is a club. And I had been out to Half Moon Bay to prepare and had taken some LSD, but I mistimed it so it peaked as I, as people dressed me and put me out on stage. And, <laughs> and I sat on the stool and I looked out at the audience and um, I saw ocean waves and um, 
I didn't really know what I was doing there. And um, sort of, as Paul was pointing out, which level to come in on. So uh, I said, are there any questions? <laughs> and... Uh, And um, this large fish stood up. And, uh, uh, he had a tie and a jacket on. And, uh, and he said, could you comment on the relative merits of serotonin and the synaptic theories of the hypothalamus? And, um, and it was this fish um, opening his mouth and what he was saying was, do you love me? So he sat down and I said to him, yes, I love you. Okay. And he said, that doesn't satisfy me at all. <laughs> After, um, I, I thought about all these anniversaries, and this is actually uh, the 30th year anniversary of when I was first, uh, when somebody extended compassion to me. I was a, um, a psychologist, psychotherapist, psychologist at Stanford and a real tight-assed um, person. And I was, um, my first therapy patient uh, saw my predicament and he turned... <laughs> Uh, he turned me on to grass, which was a... His name was Vic Lovell, and he, Ken Kesey dedicated One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to Vic, by the way, and that was a nice time for all of us. Uh, but then in 61, uh, the major transformation of direction in my life occurred um, through really the compassion of Timothy, um, who... Uh, introduced me to psilocybin and um, it's interesting that since that time whatever that experience was when I touched um, the unconditioned mind when I touched awareness behind my thoughts when I realized I wasn't who I thought I was and I breathed a tremendous sigh of relief um, I mean, I had been so busy carrying that model of who I thought I was and projecting it outward and getting a conspiracy to make believe I was that, that it was incredibly refreshing to um, find this very ancient place in myself where I am and I always was and always will be. It had nothing to do with life or death. or It just is. And I was in ecstasy and um, I was rolling in the snow outside Timothy's home. And... Um, Many of you probably know this story that I then climbed through the snow to go back. I was spending the weekend at my parents' home, and um, it was around 4 in the morning, and there had been a big snowstorm, so I decided to shovel their walk. And I felt very much like the young member of the tribe 
you know, doing his work. And my parents' faces appeared in the upstairs window. With the look of, you damn fool, what are you drunk? It's the middle of the night. What are you doing shoveling snow? And I realized that that was the voice that had guided me to my Ph.D., um, and that was the one that always told me who I was supposed to be. And um, I looked inside with this new place, and I realized it was all right to shovel snow. And I waved at them and laughed. <laughs> and that was like the first act of um, uh, trying to integrate what had happened to me. I wasn't trying. I just integrated what had happened to me into my new social relationship. Well, for the past... Um, 25 years, I have done everything I could think of um, to integrate what happened to me in that moment under Timothy's guidance. And um, several years ago, um, I was with David McClelland, who uh, was Tim's and my boss at Harvard. And David said to me, you know, Dick, you haven't changed a bit. And I thought, after all this work, it was a complete delusion. But inside myself, as you all understand, that what you see, to turn it into what you be, is a really um, subtle and sensitive trip that after the first moment of awakening to try to integrate that into your life, to integrate the bad trips and the good trips, the horrible beauty of the universe, the, to integrate the level of awareness that exists behind form and play, as Christ said, in the world but not of the world, is uh, it's such an incredibly subtle process. Because if you go too far one way, you kind of lose it. And if you go too far the other way, you lose it. I was, um, I was looking back over a book in preparation for coming here tonight that I did with Sidney Cohen back in 1966. It was a book called LSD. And I came across a picture in that book. Uh, there were a set of pictures uh, that we picked, and Sidney was the good guy, and I was the bad guy in the book. I was the guy that was advocating the use of psychedelics, and Sidney was the guy that was saying, dangerous and stop. Tim was too bad, so I was the next baddest guy they could use. And, and <laughs> And, Tim, and uh, Sydney picked all the pictures that showed people going, and I picked all the pictures of people playing flutes and making love and playing in fields with flowers. And there was only one picture both of us picked of all the pictures. And it was a picture of a, a fellow lying on the kitchen floor looking at some spilled Coca-Cola. <laughs> 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 
Now, uh, Sydney picked it because it showed the trivial nature of the mind when it's drugged. But I knew that that fellow was seeing the entire universe in that bit of spilled Coca-Cola. I've, um, I've noticed, because I'm a psychologist somewhere back in there, one incarnation back, that um, in all the years that I went through psychoanalysis, um, became a therapist, took drugs, went to India, had a guru, have done Buddhist meditation, Hindu meditation, etc. In all that time, I haven't gotten rid of one neurosis. Okay. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we thought, I know Tim and I really thought that the minute you saw it, you'd be, it would all be, you'd just be um, a liberated being. Not one neurosis have I gotten rid of. But I noticed that there's something that has changed. That the neuroses used to be these huge monsters. Like, no, don't do that. I mean, that sexual perversity. You know, don't take me over. And now they're sort of like little schmooze. And I... And I kind of invite them for tea. Oh, sexual perversity. Come on in. I haven't seen you in months. You know, come on in. And that's part of the, um, the integrity of this experience, of growing into seeing the relative nature of reality. And the um, the paper mache quality of social institutions, and the way in which personalities turns into style rather than substance. It's interesting that um, I've ended up working so much with dying because it was really through Aldous and Alan and Tim and Ralph that um, I even got involved in that. I hadn't. Uh, You've got to understand that the image that's been developed is that Timothy and I were really um, playing a heavy role at Harvard in visionary stuff. In fact, Timothy had the vision. I was like, um, I didn't understand what the hell he was doing, to tell you the truth. I was the one that constantly said, Timothy, you're going too fast. Timothy, slow down. And he did this psychedelic experience based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And the whole thing seemed absolutely nonsensical to me when he and Ralph did that. And it's interesting that it's taken me many years to grow into the kinds of visions that he was having in those days. And to appreciate how much what happened to me through psychedelics transformed my consciousness in such a way that death meant something different to me that allowed me to be in the presence of somebody that was dying in a way that honored 
the drama of the process without getting lost in it. There was a um, there was a study done, as most of you know, by Dr. Walter Pankey at Harvard for his doctorate in divinity. He was an MD, which was known as the Good Friday study. It was an extraordinary study in which 20 theological students from the Andover Newton Theological Seminary participated in a double-blind placebo study on Good Friday in the Boston University Chapel as a Harvard research project. We, we took three, three institutions down with us on that one. And half of the ministers in training were given psilocybin and half were given a placebo. As if we had to make believe that it was nothing. That's the null hypothesis. And afterwards they reported what had happened to them. And Walter had taken all of the criteria in the Bible of mystical experience. He had made, he found there were nine criteria of a genuine mystical revelatory experience. And then he took these protocols from these 20 subjects and he typed them up, taking all references to drugs out of them, and he sent them to major theologians around the country. And he asked them to judge these protocols in terms of these nine criteria. Of the control group, one of the ten had one of the nine criteria. Of the experimental group that took the psilocybin, nine of the ten had four or more of the criteria of a genuine religious mystical experience. It was snidely reported in Time magazine under the title Instant Mysticism. But it turned out that that touched me very deeply. Because what had happened to me was that I had touched something that I couldn't find metaphors that I was comfortable with for dealing with it. And it's interesting that over the years, Timothy and Ralph and I have all gone in different directions, finding metaphors that were uniquely suitable to our karmic predicament to understand what the hell happened to us at that moment. And what happened to me was that it definitely, I experienced that as a link to the, all of the spiritual traditions. And it led me to India and to my guru and into Buddhism and so on, where I found these wonderful cartographers giving maps of just the processes that my mind was going through and my heart was going through. And um, many of you know that when I met my guru, he said, uh, you use that medicine? I said, what medicine? He said, that medicine. And somebody said, maybe he means LSD. And I said, LSD? And he says, yeah, acha. Here's this old man sitting up on the mountains on a table. He says, you got any of it? <laughs> yeah. So I brought out the bottle as I carried a little traveling case with me for moments when meditation wasn't enough. <laughs> and I... Uh, 
handed him uh, one of Owsley's best. It was 300 micrograms. And he held out his hand for more. So I put a second one. That was 600 micrograms. He asked for another one, so I put 900 micrograms. And then he went like that. And the scientist in me (laughs) thought, this is going to be very interesting. Because... uh, And so I kept watching, and he had a lot of body weight, so I was computing how long the onset with the body weight and so on. And after an hour, nothing had happened. Well, it blew my mind. I mean, I had never met anybody that could take 900 micrograms and nothing happened. Because the implication of that was that he was in a place where... See, we took acid to go from point A to point B, but if you're already at point B... It's like drinking water. So I came home and I told everybody about it, but in my mind was this little gnawing feeling that maybe he just clouded my mind and threw it over his shoulder. Because I didn't actually see it go into the mouth, you see. So I came back to India in 1971, and uh, he called me up to him one day. He said, did you give me some medicine when when you were here last time? I said, yes. He said, did I take it? I said, I think so. He said, what happened? I said, nothing. He says, go away. Ciao. Then he called me up the next day. He says, you got any more? I said, yeah. So I brought it out and I had five pills, one of which was broken. So he took four of them. This is 1,200 micrograms. And he took each one and he stuck on hung. He put on the next one, uh, next one, uh, next one. Because he knew. And then he said, can I take water? And I said, sure. He says, garam, pani, hot or cold? I said, whatever you want. He called for water. He drank a glass of water. He said, will it make me crazy? I said, probably. And after a while, he, called, he said, how long will it take? So I said, maybe an hour. So he called a man over with a big watch, and he was holding the watch, looking at it. Saying, and after a little while, he went under his blanket, and he came up looking absolutely mad. I mean, like, you know? And I thought, what have I done? This old man is 80 years old, and I've given him acid, and he he didn't realize how strong our medicines are, and he took it, and oh my God, what have I done? I'll never live with my ethical breach, and you know. And then he just laughed at me. And he said, these were known about thousands of years ago. Yogis use these. But he says, they don't now do the purification, so it doesn't work the same way. He said, it's useful. I said, should I take it anymore? He said, if you're in a cool place and you're feeling much peace and your mind is turned towards God, he said, it could be useful. He said, it would allow you to come in and have the darshan of the Spirit, come in and be in the presence of the Spirit. 
But he says, you can only stay two hours. He said, it would be better to become the spirit than just visit it. But he said, your medicine won't do that. And I appreciate that. I really appreciate the, the message of that. Like Houston Smith, who Tim referred to, he said, LSD produces religious experiences, but it's less evident whether it can produce a religious life. And what I have experienced in the past 25 years is if I were to look at what the essence of the matter is, is that having touched the unconditioned and having seen the relative nature of reality and the way the mind creates the dream, that has given me a faith in the possibility of who we are. And that faith has been what has guided me from method to method and was allowed me to use the methods because I understood the possibility, even though often it was just a memory of something that had happened to me. And it feels to me that as long as I live, I will still be growing into what happened to me in the first psychedelic experience. That it's just a process we go through of slowly tuning and tuning. And for the first 10 years, I understood that the game was to get high. And what it involved fit in right very clearly with my own neurosis, which was a rejection of my own humanity. I mean, I really fit into a renunciate path. And so what I was was a horny celibate for years. Yeah, I won't think about sex. I won't think about sex. It's a, obsessed with it. And I pushed everything, all the human stuff away, because I just wanted to get out there and stay there for the good of everybody in my mind. And somewhere along the way, I began to see that what that wisdom showed me was that if you push away anything, it's got you. That pushing away my humanity was as much attachment. I remember being with Alan Watts once in the, at a Benedictine monastery we were working at. We were in his room uh, partaking of the altar wine at around two in the morning. And he said to me, Dick, your problem is you're too attached to emptiness. And it, he was right on. He was right on. As the third patriarch says, even to be attached to the idea of enlightenment is to go astray. And what's happened to me from the past 10, 12, 14 years is a coming back into my humanity. It's as if once I rooted myself in the awareness that exists behind form, even a little bit, and I'm just a little way along the path, that faith allowed me then to come and dip back into the world of forms and allow my heart to be open, like keeping your heart open in hell. 
keeping your heart open in the presence of suffering because even at the moment when the suffering is most intense, right behind it inside you is an incredible equanimity. Because one of the things that I touched through acid was a, an extreme appreciation of the perfection of the laws of form, the perfection of the unfolding of the law. And it's, it sounds like it's, it's too hard to lay on the world that suffering is grave. But I can feel when I look at what our spiritual journeys are on this plane, it feels so obvious to me that the stuff we are handed is the grist for the mill of awakening out of the illusion until we can be in the form without being entrapped by it so that we can play lightly, we can dance sweetly, we can have joy in the presence of the hell realms and do what we can do to relieve the suffering without getting burned out and lost and bitter and cynical and frustrated. And we can... And we have the tolerance to deal with chaos and uncertainty. And what has happened is that the 60s unleashed something extraordinarily powerful that is still reverberating and echoing in this culture and actually in the world. And what that released was a recognition in people that they were free to change institutions and themselves. And each of us is figuring out how to do that. But social institutions which have power structures are very threatened by that kind of change. And what we are coming to appreciate is the way in which we can go about changing in such a way that the transformations are gentle but they aren't necessarily violent. When Gandhi said, I want the British to leave, but I want them to leave as friends. It was our, once we saw the vision, we so wanted to manifest the vision in form, and there was so much confusion between the evolutionary process and the revolutionary process, that a lot of what we did in setting up alternative structures in the way in which we protested created more and more polarity in this culture. And in an interesting way, Ronald Reagan has been in power because of what we did in the 60s. We gave that power to him. That's a very interesting phenomenon. And it's only as we get to see behind the pendulum swings of revolution and really acknowledge the fact there has been true evolution, can we learn how to just transform the social institutions by understanding that the same institutions can work very differently when they're motivated by love rather than motivated by fear. So this was just a progress report of what's happened to me 30 years down the road. I'll be back in 10 more years to give you another one. Thank you.
You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I guess we've kind of missed that 10-year status report, uh, as it's now been over 20 years since Ram Dass gave the talk we just heard. Yet, uh, I found that a lot of what he said was still very much relevant to the times we are now in. You know, uh, sometimes I think we all forget to take into account how rapidly our culture is actually evolving. I realize that if you watch the television news programs, you have come to the conclusion that we are actually devolving. But when you uh, consider the fact that in the U.S. women have only had the right to vote for less than 100 years, then you can see that over the entire course of Western history that uh, these last 50 years or so have been highly accelerated in terms of uh, us humans waking up and beginning to see ourselves in a much larger and more inclusive context. Again, uh, you wouldn't think so if your only inputs are coming from the corporate media. But if you've been uh, going to raves and festivals and conferences and uh, just getting around a little bit, uh, it's easy to see that, at least compared to the 1950s, we are in a completely different world. And uh, my guess is that no more than 10 years from now, we'll be in yet another completely different world than we are today. Events are simply coming at us much faster these days. And I do believe that what Ram Dass said about the 60s is correct. What has happened is that the 60s unleashed something extraordinarily powerful that is still reverberating and echoing in this culture, and actually in the world. And what that release was, was a recognition in people that they were free to change. And uh, I think that's what we're all about here in the psychedelic community, consciously changing ourselves into ever more human beings. Well, that's going to have to do it for today, and uh, so I'll close the podcast again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can uh, find through psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the salon, you can uh, hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is now available as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Human dying, Impossible become possible and yet remaining impossible.